So last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, and it's unusual that I do two sermons in a row. And I was looking back over my notes, and about this time every year I talk about the gospel. So, who am I to break tradition? So I want to talk about the gospel, and it works well with the sin of the spies and the Hebrews reading. The reading in Hebrews stops short of where I actually wanted to be. So we read in Hebrews chapter 3 about those who rebelled and died in the wilderness and so forth. Same thing we read about in Numbers. If you go on to chapter 4, and I want to read the first two verses of chapter 4 to set up what we're doing here. So Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the operative thing here is, according to the book of Hebrews, the generation that died in the wilderness received the same gospel as did the apostles. So with that set up, I do want to talk about the gospels. One of the things that happens several places in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially with respect to Paul, is we are exhorted to obey the gospel. And, of course, the question you should all be asking is, how do you obey good news, which is what gospel means? It does mean good news, but I don't think it means what most of the modern church thinks it means. 1 Peter 4.16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what does the gospel mean in context? In other words, what did it mean to the people who heard it then? And what did it mean to the generation in the wilderness? because I will suggest that what it meant to them is what it actually meant when it was given. First off, gospel is a political term. It's not especially a religious term. And I'm going to quote to you from the Priene Calendar Inscription. You all know that one, right? You all read the Priene Calendar Inscription regularly, don't you? Yeah, I thought so. It is an inscription on a stone in Turkey from before the time of Christ. And I will just read it to you. Decree of the Greek assembly in the province of Asia, on motion of the high priest, and I don't know his name, son of, and I don't know his name, of, I don't know his name, whereas province that orders all our lives has in her display of concern and generosity on our behalf adorned our lives with the highest good. Augustus, whom she has filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity, and has in her beneficence granted us and those who came after us a savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order and whereas Caesar when he was manifest transcended the expectations of all who anticipated the gospel not only by surpassing the benefits conferred by his predecessors but by leaving no expectation of surpassing him to those who would come after him with the result that the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of the gospel. For the world, because of him, proconsul Fabius Maximus, 
has discovered a way to honor Augustus, who was hitherto unknown among the Greeks, namely to reckon time from the date of his nativity. Therefore, with the blessings of good fortune for their own welfare, the Greeks of Asia decreed that the new year begin on all the cities on September 23rd, which is the birthday of Augustus. So, gospel in this context was the announcement of the birth of a king, was the announcement of good news, was the announcement of the arrival of a savior. That's the context in which gospel was used at the time of the writing of the New Testament. It was the announcement of a king. It was the announcement of a savior. It was announcement of the change of the calendar. Ooh, who else changed the calendar? We all operate in, the Jews call it the common era, but Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So what you have here is, in context, at the time of the Messiah, the term gospel was a political term. It was not a religious term. And by the way, that's how Paul uses it, as does Peter. So, what's happened today is the word gospel has been spiritualized. I've told many of you this story. Some new folks haven't heard it. I didn't grow up in the church. I became a believer in my 40s. I was in the Episcopal Church at that time, and I wondered what the gospel was. And nobody could explain it to me in a way that made any sense whatsoever. They all just sort of assumed that everybody knows what the gospel is. In my case, everybody didn't know what the gospel was. So I had to figure it out. The concept of resurrection, which is integral to the modern church's understanding of the gospel, doesn't show up in scripture until Isaiah. It's not in the Torah. It isn't something that would have been explained to the generation in the wilderness. So when Hebrews says the generation in the wilderness received the same gospel we did, it wasn't talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. That's not the gospel they received. Resurrection at the time of Yeshua was controversial. Remember in the gospels when Yeshua is duking it out with the various religious authorities? One of the group of folks that he dukes it out with are the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection. That's one of the things about that particular religious party in Israel. They didn't believe the resurrection. They were, in a sense, Torah literalists. They only believed in the written scripture. And they didn't see resurrection in the scripture. Now, it is in the scripture in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but that's not Torah. Now, one of the things that happens with the modern church is when they spiritualize the idea of the gospel and they really only talk about it in terms of eternal life, which is basically the message of the modern church. You believe in Jesus, you say the sinner's prayer, and you have got eternal life, right? And by the way, I'm not arguing with that. I believe that's true. Understand me, please. I am not disputing that. I agree with it. But what I'm saying is, it isn't the gospel that would have been given to the generation in the wilderness for which God got really grumpy with them for not obeying it. And similarly, it isn't the gospel as it would have been understood during the apostolic era. 
the idea of resurrection is in fact abroad in the Jewish community at the time of Yeshua. Because remember, a lawyer comes up and says to him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, that's one of the things that gets asked him. So the idea is there, but it isn't really clear how it got there. Unless, again, you go back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the places that it's first referenced. And, oh, by the way, it's referenced with respect to national Israel. The Valley of the Dry Bones, for example, Ezekiel 37, right? Where it says, so these bones live, and God talks about resurrection there. But it's resurrection in the sense of the nation Israel, which has been destroyed and sent off into exile. The emphasis is not on personal eternal life, the emphasis is on the life of the nation Israel. Hey, don't get me wrong, I am not at all poo-pooing eternal life, that's, that, that's a real thing. But one of the things that this understanding of the gospel does is it takes the church out of politics. You've all heard Yeshua say, my kingdom is not of this world. Ooh, well, okay, well, that must mean that Yeshua's kingdom is somewhere in heaven, and we really don't need to be too concerned about what happens in this world because our kingdom is not of the world either. And lots and lots of believers in Messiah have no interest in how the world runs because they don't think it's that important. And in fact, one of the things that happened back in the 50s, 60s, somewhere, when they set up the 501c3 business, and by the way, we are not one, for those of you who don't know, we are not a 501c3 church, but one of the things that was set up by that IRS regulation is, in order to be tax-exempt, churches have to stay out of politics. And all the churches say, yay and amen, we'll stay out of politics, just give us a tax exemption. And what I'm suggesting to you is that flows from a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Now, what I want to do is compare the modern church's understanding of the gospel to the modern Jewish understanding of Yom Kippur. What is the primary thing that the modern rabbinic church understands about Yom Kippur. What happens to your sins? Your sins are covered. And that's sort of the primary focus of the modern rabbinic church. The whole goal of the exercise is we need to get our sins forgiven and we go through Yom Kippur once a year and that's what happens. And I will suggest to you that that attitude is exactly analogous to the attitude of the modern church to the gospel. Now why do I say that? Those of you who have been here a while, when we study Yom Kippur, one of the things that you notice is the forgiveness of sins is clear down the bottom of the scripture, and it's almost sort of an, oh, by the way. Oh, by the way, when you come in here, your sins are going to be forgiven. That's not the whole point of the entire ritual. The whole point of the ritual is how do you come into the presence of God safely? How do you come into the presence of God without becoming crispy critters? Which is what happens to Nadab and Abihu, right? They go into the presence of God and they do it wrong and fire comes down from heaven and we got instant crispy critters and they get hauled out by their garments. So the whole purpose of Yom Kippur is how do you come into the presence of God safely? 
And once you are in the presence of God, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. That's really not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is not to get your sins forgiven. The point of the exercise is to come into the presence of God. That's what you're after, is being in the presence of God. And forgiveness of sins is a byproduct of being in the presence of God. Lots of rabbinic authorities see it that way also. So, what was the good news that the generation in the wilderness got? if it's not the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. And again, to say one more time, I am not hostile to that understanding. I absolutely agree with that understanding. But that's not what the generation in the wilderness got, and that's not what the book of Hebrews is saying that we got. I will suggest that what they got was deliverance from human government. Because of their sins, they were slaves in Egypt. And what happens is God reaches into Egypt and first off he moves his people out of the way, moves them to Goshen so that they're not harmed. Then he turns around and he deals with this apostate human government which has arrogated unto itself the power of God. Isn't that what they did in Egypt? Pharaoh is himself a god. He is a god among many gods. And the state is something to be worshipped. What did I just read you in the Priene calendar inscription? Caesar is a god, isn't he? And the arrival of Caesar brings us peace, it brings us a savior, and oh, by the way, we change the calendar because of the birth of this god. Isn't that essentially what's going on with Egypt? Where Pharaoh says... Who is this Jehovah? I don't know this Jehovah. I don't have to pay any attention to him. And of course God says, stand by, I'll introduce myself. But the gospel is being delivered out of that system. And that would have been the gospel that would have been understood by the apostles. One of the things that happens with Paul when he is in one of the cities somewhere is the charge is brought against him that he is advocating another king besides Caesar in one of Paul's typical riots as soon as in every place Paul goes he incites a riot I mean, the guy's a troublemaker but one of the charges that's leveled against him is he is advocating a king who is not Caesar so again it's a political thing and what happens with empire or human government is at some point it starts to take upon itself, this is what you must worship. And it does it explicitly in competition with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is the only religion in the United States right now that is oppressed? Christianity. Who's the only religion that's not allowed in the public square? Christianity. If you are a Muslim, they will change the rules in the House of Representatives so you can practice your religion with your headgear. They won't do that for Christians and Jews. The only religion that empire is hostile to is the actual religion of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what happens. And what the gospel then is, is when God reaches into that system of government and plucks his people out of there, 
and sets them in his presence so that they are able to worship him freely and that they have freedom from the restrictions that are placed upon them by imperial government. And again, don't get me wrong, I'll say it a third time. I am not at all hostile to the understanding that a relationship with Yeshua does in fact get you resurrection to eternal life. That's a big deal. I'm not in any way poo-pooing that. But I'm simply saying that's not what the understanding was at the time the gospel was given. And that's not the understanding that the church in Rome had because once the church started taking off, what happened to the Roman Empire? We got rid of the Caesar worship stuff, didn't we? The Roman Empire became Christian and Christianity spread throughout the world and it was in direct opposition to empire. That was what the good news was, that this king, Yeshua, who is not of this world right now, is sweeping through the world and he is freeing people from empire worship or emperor worship. That's the gospel. Now, one of the things that we are victims of is Satan is really good with words. One of his specialities. He does it really well. And this country was originally established as a Christian nation. In other words, it was established by Christians. But one of the things about Christianity, just like Judaism and everything else, is we can't get along. You here are sitting in a church on Shabbat. And I will guarantee you that the Reformed Baptist Church that meets here on Sunday sort of looks at you and says, ooh, legalists, or worse to that effect. So even though we both worship the same God, and I do consider them brothers in the Lord and all that kind of stuff, and I'm not hostile to them, they don't want to be in our church, and I don't want to be in their church. And what I certainly don't want to do is have them establishing a state religion that I have to ascribe to. And the founding fathers, when they came here, were escaping state churches. So you had the Church of England, and you had to be a member of the Church of England. So what they were doing was escaping state churches, and what they said is, this new place, which is established by Christians, will not have a coercive state church. That was what the separation of church and state meant at the time the concept was discussed by Jefferson. And by the way, there's a treaty or something where someone says we are not a Christian nation, and what that means is we do not have an official state church. But Satan, being really good with words, takes the concept of the separation of church and state to have morphed now into the idea that the state is hostile to religion. Or, no, no, the state is not hostile to religion, the state is hostile to Christianity. If you're a Muslim, the state's not hostile to you. If you're a Hindu, the state's not hostile to you. But it is hostile to the religion that claims itself to be in opposition to empire. The one religion that says you are a free person. You do not worship the state. The state exists to maintain order. 
so that you are free then to go about your business as long as you don't mess with anybody else. That's what the original concept of the Constitution was. And it has now morphed into the idea that Christians have no business being in public life. Did anybody watch the confirmation hearings on some of the judges that Mr. Trump has? You have these Democrats saying, the dogma is heavy on you. How can you rule fairly? You're a Catholic. How can you rule fairly? You are X, Y, or Z. And it's all with respect to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I would guarantee you that if Mr. Trump was so foolish as to appoint a Muslim as a judge, the Democrats would just fall over themselves praising the Muslim. You understand what I'm saying? So what I'm suggesting to you is the idea of gospel is entirely political, and the idea of scripture is entirely political. And, oh, by the way, you've got eternal life. Cool. I like that. But the idea is you're supposed to be involved in this world. If this world didn't matter to God, he would have not put you in it. He would not have dealt with the Egyptian empire the way he did, as an example to us. He wouldn't have done any of that if government wasn't important to him. It is important. And if you're going to believe in the separation of church and state, be prepared to be governed by Muslims. Because the most intolerant always wins. Let me give you an example. If you are in a banquet, and the banquet has a number of Jews and Muslims in it, there will not be any pork on the menu. Bacon will not be available in the salad. Not even in a separate bowl. This salad has bacon in it, that salad does not, and you may choose whichever you like. No, no. If you've got Muslims in the crowd, bacon will not be on the table anywhere. And the reason for that is... Everybody can eat salad without bacon, but only Muslims or Jews or Messianics care about salad with bacon. So it's easier for the venue to simply say, all right, everybody can eat salad without bacon. We'll just do salad without bacon, and that way we won't offend anybody. So what I'm saying is the most radical always wins. And the only way that you're going to be able to live in a country that is free of empire is to get radical. That's the way it is. Because if you don't get radical, the radicals will overrun you. And right now you've got radical communists, you know, the socialists, all those guys. You've got radical Muslims. And those folks are hell-bent, and I mean that exactly literally, hell-bent, on taking over the country. And it's a religious war. Communists are a competing religion. They say they're without religion, but nobody's without religion. Everybody believes in something. We're designed that way. And if you don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't mean you don't believe in anything. It means you believe in something that's wrong. And the more zealous they are, and the more retiring the church is, the worse things become. That's the way it works. And you can look at the news or anything else and you can see it working. So you've got to get radical. You know, when you go into a banquet and there's bacon in the salad, you just get really upset. You don't say, oh, well, I'll just avoid the salad. No, get upset. I'm serious. You need to get upset and you need to push back. Because if you don't, 
we're going to be governed by communists and Muslims. That's just the way it's going. And by the way, communists and Muslims are very comfortable with each other. They both believe in essentially the same form of government. One of them just has this god over the top of them, the other one doesn't, but it's the same. That's why they're very comfortable with each other. Now, as you go out, there's one more piece of advice that I would give you as you are being radical and you are being intolerant. Intolerance is good, by the way, like intolerance. Be wise as serpents. Don't throw yourself into a wood chipper. So as you go about being radical and you go about being intolerant, both of which I firmly endorse, be wise as serpents. Pick your battles, but do battle. Go out and change something.